Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're speaking to you once again from the green room of the Wally Baloo Auditorium here on the beautiful Hoople campus. Today, we're talking about the latest in a long line of academic scandals, the rise and fall of the so-called Gospel of Jesus' Wife, a supposedly 4th century Coptic translation of a Greek text that mentioned, well, Jesus and his wife. How did a highly educated faculty member at a pretty well-known institution fall for a pretty fake papyrus? Why did a pretty fancy academic journal fall for it too? What is wrong with people? But is it the people or the system, man? What is real anyway? And how do disgruntled graduate students and Elaine Bennis fit in? Okay, so let's, let's go to the, the lightning round. And um, since there have been complaints in recent, uh, in recent weeks about lightning rounds being too specific, I'll, I'll be a little more general. When was the last time you bought something that turned out to be a fake? Hmm. Interesting question. Wow, yeah. Right, okay, well, I, I can start okay. and I can show you. You, you know, everyone, and our listener in particular, wherever that listener may be, caught in traffic as usual. Or elsewhere. Or elsewhere. Kids in the back seat yelling. Um, everybody knows that I'm fond of um, very pointy writing implements. So I bought these so-called Korean pens, very exotic, um, very, very pointy, like point zero 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 one, <laughs> made in China. Not made in Korea, um, you know, falseness in, in advertising, and that was and that was recently. Don't even get me started about my Bolex watch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would like to so, think of myself as an educated, enlightened consumer who doesn't really buy don't we all? fake. Ooh, don't we all? Yeah. I'm so you do you have any, <laughs> that your, any that's your possible answer? forgery in your closet? Um, well, I suppose any non-designer piece of clothing that is meant to look like a particular designer piece of clothing or handbag might count. But if you go into that willingly and knowledgeably, I don't know if it counts. Right, exactly. It doesn't count. Oh, yeah. that's a good point, though. Willing, willingness and knowledgeableness. <laughs> right. Well, that, that's the difference between a forgery and a replica or something. Oh. Well, I recently uh, bought a... Uh, barber jacket on and it was Ooh. it was the last of its kind and it was significantly um, reduced in price I got a great deal on it 
and I uh, visited my daughter and son-in-law and my son-in-law who studied, got his MA in England, in London, immediately said, what makes you think it's real? Ooh. <laughs> Which, that, and that small seed of doubt once <laughs> has grown to a mighty oak. And it's like, uh. well, it's real enough for me and it was cheap enough for me. So I don't really, I, I'm never gonna get to the bottom of this, but mm. I, I think it's a real barber and that's all I can say. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, uh, that's a good, a field jacket, canvas? Or yeah, one of the wa yeah, waxed canvas. Waxed canvas. You know, with the, the two, you know, with the pockets and, you know, it's all that. And it seems to be legitimate, but it was very cheap. <laughs> but it was also like the end of this particular model, you know, ah. and they're constantly putting new things, you know, new lines together or whatever. So I don't know, but it was very interesting when he said that. And of course, when I bought this glycine watch, I went through the same thing because I also got that very, very inexpensively online. And, um, and I've always wondered, but <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, it's the real thing. Well, and I think right, anyone, because you believe. Yeah, exactly. It's all about believing, yeah. It's the power of belief. I, right. I want to believe it's the, it's the Fox Mulder syndrome. Yeah, or I'm um, lost. This might be a wonderful moment to transition into what we're actually planning on talking about. <laughs> what, what are we talking about? Yes, well, we're talking about um, fakes and forgeries and why people believe. And the, and the point of entree into all this is the appearance of a new book by um, journalist Ariel Sabar about the gospel of Jesus, Jesus's wife. And uh, there's a big article in the Atlantic magazine, and it's a you know it's a fantastic article. It's an amazing book. It's a, an amazing story about this document and how people wanted to believe because not just people, not just people. And here, there's a real distinction that needs ah. to be made. I think <laughs> you're denying people's peoplehood. <laughs> These are the the people who want to believe are right. highly trained Western scholars who, you know, are supposed to uh, demand a very, very high level of rigor right. in, uh, when they're examining ancient artifacts or texts or anything. Right. So right. it's not just people, but it's a, a cadre of specialists uh, in very, very rarefied turf. In, and that rarefied turf is the field of uh, religious studies, biblical studies, et cetera. And we should also right. contextualize- Operology, which is even more rarefied. Right, very, very right. good point. I mean, how many of us can claim to be pepperologists in the world? And of course, that's <laughs> who would want to claim to be a pepperologist? <laughs> but as they say, some of my best friends are pepperologists. Ah. It's, it's been proven to be uh, you know, a very good uh, opening line when you sidle up to someone at the bar, <laughs> a pepperologist. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you... yeah. <laughs> oh, no, go ahead. I, I don't want, I, no, I don't want to pursue that any further. <laughs> I was going to get us back on track and just say we should oh, contextualize a little bit more and boring. say that this, this papyrus turned up, um, which purports to say, to have a line um, saying, um, wait, I wrote it down. Where is it? Um, saying, Jesus said to them, my wife, dot, 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 
or I don't know what comes next, but uh, so that got everybody very excited. Um, and no, and no one cited Rodney Dangerfield. So I really feel like right there, there, there was a, <laughs> and nobody, and nobody cited um, Nikos Kazantzakis and his book, The Last Temptation of Christ, which was a major motion picture, which posited <laughs> that Jesus had a, in its many permutations, that Jesus had a wife. So it's an idea that's, that's been out there, but, you know, having actual, yeah. <laughs> an actual marriage certificate, well, not really, but. And one of the actual... Dan Brown books dealt with this also, um, but I forget which one. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. In so a much more like... entertaining way. <laughs> nothing's more entertaining than us well but this is <laughs> and we thank our listener uh, <laughs> for instanting support and their faith in our humor uh, there you go um, all right but then the other out. the other piece of this i'll i'll go on in my role as, as a straight man here um the other hey, piece <laughs> the other piece of this is that um, this, this papyrus got published in an important uh, journal of, of um, theology, of religious studies. And it went through some form, although it turns out not a very good form of the peer review process, uh, all the time assuming that it was a real, a real artifact, this papyrus, not a forged artifact. Um, and that's kind of the issue that Ariel Sabar deals with in his book, uh, the breakdown of the peer review process. Right. And, right. And, and the artifact itself turns out to have this beyond bizarre backstory that would have been evident had somebody just sort of brushed, <laughs> brushed the surface with a, a tiny pinch of skepticism about it. Right, exactly. And, and that, you know, this. This speaks to so many issues uh, in, in the academy, and not just in humanities and social sciences, but also in the hard sciences. I mean, I don't know how long ago it was, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, that uh, physicists at one of the universities in Utah had convinced and published uh, and convinced everybody that they could do desktop cold fusion. Uh, and those oh, that's totally real. Published. And then they that's were totally, to that's totally real. Right. And then they, you know, it no just one, has to, it just hasn't been proven yet. Right. And then <laughs> the experiments, but they had already been published. Um, so it happens also in the hard sciences, probably not as much. Um, oh, it happened. No, actually. And here oh, I, here I must, what I, must what I meant to say is it happens in the hard sciences more frequently ah. than yes. in humanities <laughs> or social sciences. <laughs> it, it happens. Because that's where that's where money is, really. I here I am looking at retractionwatch.com, our friends oh. at retractionwatch.com. We'd like for them to be our friends. Well and, and there there are fifty million cases. Right. And they're in the medical, the biomedical field, they're in the social sciences, um, you know, people's lives are at stake. Right, and, you know, billions of dollars in public policy is at stake. Okay, excuse and... me, I'm just going to put my head in the oven now. <laughs> Do you have something cooking in there? <laughs> That's besides the point. Me, me and my apple strudel. I have to 
Um, I was going to make this point much later, but I'll interrupt you and make it now, which is that anything that is a forgery and now becomes so public, um, so many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of research dollars are wasted on trying to verify or, or disprove this. So some forger is sitting in his little basement lab laughing his head off about all the money that's being wasted. Um, oh, unless of course it turns out to be real. <laughs> unless it's real. <laughs> Well, here, here I'll cite a, 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 a situation that, that I wrote about recently, because I, I wrote that thing about James Mellor. Um, right. It right. came out back in the spring. So, you know, my, uh, my, my friend, colleague, Eberhard Sanger, went to James Mellart's um, study, or his, you know, Mellart died like nine, 10 years ago. And he found all of these papers and artifacts which showed that Mellart was like making all sorts of stuff up, you know, fake, um, fake ins inscriptions and fake wall paintings from Chantal Huyuk. And it's really, it was really shocking and disappointing. But there are two artifacts. And this, I think, you know, compounds the, the story. One is, is a purported tablet from a site in Western Turkey called Bekoy and which nobody's ever seen, which seems to be like a completely made up story. But then there's this very, very long inscription called the Bekoy inscription from the late Bronze Age purportedly. And everybody thought, oh, it's all made up, it's all fake. But Eberhard Sanger and his, uh, his associates showed that there were place names and linguistic elements that nobody knew about and that Mellart couldn't have known about until very, very recently. So who knows, maybe it's kind of real. And um, I can only add to that, I studied with Ian Todd, who was a student of Mellert's and uh, was also uh, part of the Chantal Huyuk excavation team um, and was also uh, forced to leave uh, Turkey in the wake of um, the Dorak, uh, Dorak uh, treasure. Uh, he always asserted that um, the Dorak uh, treasure was authentic and that Mellard, Mellard had seen it and sketched it and it was all true. So, um, you know, it's hard to peel all of this stuff apart. Um, what is reality anyway? Oh, now we're gonna get to, you, to Walter, <laughs> either Walter Benjamin or uh, Meg Ryan, however, <laughs> however you want to talk about. Uh, uh, oh, that, that's too good. And fakes. <laughs> When when Walter met met Meg, yeah, really. <laughs> right. Okay, um, no. and and we invite our listener to to contemplate what that what that yeah. meeting, perhaps at a deli somewhere, um, would have would have been like. Um, so, all right, but but wait, let's circle back to the desire to believe in things being real on the part of scholars. Okay. We're, where does that come from? Is that just because we have a bias towards reality? It's not, you know, not well, true in my case, but. We, no, I think we want the ancient antiquity that we've been taught in religious school to actually be proven or at least to be um, discussed in a serious manner. And I think it also follows political trends. So like Jesus's wife, you know, no one would have cared. No, no one would have wanted this in like the 1920s or the 1880s. But in the 2000s, when there's a lot of uh, critical feminist theory um, has been for several decades, this is something that we, we as a society wanna, wanna kind of pull forward. Well, we're certainly at a point 
uh, in time, we're at some kind of, you know, historic inflection point where all of the old, you know, totems, institutions are to be toppled. And of course, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good in that, a lot of good. So in the United States, all of this, all of this civil war stuff, my God, it's taken us, you know, it's taken us what, 150 years to stop glorifying insurrectionists. Um, and that's, you know, that's pretty unbelievable. But um, the question is, does everything get toppled? And, and if so, how do, what, you know, what is that gonna mean? Especially in high bound institutions like academia. Mm. I was thinking that- <laughs> That really brought the mood. <laughs> It dovetails with something that I was thinking that might sound completely the opposite, um, but um, <laughs> it, it both matters a great deal and doesn't necessarily matter. I mean, nobody reads these academic journals until something kind of startling like this comes out of them. And then everybody suddenly like the New York Times and the Boston Globe seizes on it. But, um, but that's also because we don't have, um, I don't know, we don't, so, I was, so here's the comparison. So there's this other forgery from like 130 years ago, the, or possible forgery, the Shapira um, uh, strips, which are kind of like the Dead Sea Scrolls um, or, or thought to be uh, in that category, if, if in fact they were real and the idea is that they're not real. And I was thinking, that doesn't matter so much if it's real or fake, if they're proved to be real as a new theory is saying, or if they're still gonna be considered fake because we do have the Dead Sea Scrolls and we know that they're real. So if you're trying to deconstruct the Bible and say, ooh, um, there were different versions of the Bible before the Bible was codified, we have other proof. So it kind of doesn't matter. Like the, the disputed artifact is less important than it used to be before the Dead Sea Scrolls came into the world. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think that does make a little, uh, some sense in the case of the Shapira papyri. I think you're right. Um, it doesn't matter anymore. Um, but it still matters. Okay, it matters in this way. Okay. It matters in the public presentation of all of these, you know, landmark kinds of discoveries. So because there's because there's so much, the History Channel, Smithsonian, National Geographic, and they all have social media and they all have video, that as soon as you find something, it gets put into this, you know, machine. There's sort of, you know, Tom Wolf, Bonfire of the Vanities kind of thing. And it just becomes, it gets its own life and it becomes its own thing. So it matters. Yeah, but it did, it did back then too. Right, it did, but much slower. In, in, in its own way, because there were newspapers, there were telegraphs, and right, everybody right, was, right. was uh, hanging on these things, at least in the, you know, some sort of class-based, everybody was literate, most people were literate, but it was, you know, it was, it was front page news in a, in a machine, as were the decipherment of the first cuneiform tablets. Everybody was like, oh my gosh, this is, because it related to, their larger perception of the of the world and their and their place in the world, but um, yeah. these particular documents, which appeared in a, in the market, came. There was an argument. 
they went, <laughs> their purveyor killed himself, and um, they were largely forgotten. And, you know, they, they raised their heads occasionally, but that's... Right, but, the, but, but this popularization process, and I'll, yes, it existed in the past, and it, but now it exists, like all media, in a much different way. Well, it over, it's overtaken everything else. Right, it's, exactly. It's overtaken everything. And now, um, when, you try to, when you try to teach about these time periods or anything else at the most rudimentary kind of level, you're immediately confronted by people saying, I read, I know this, I've seen on the internet, you know. Right. Uh, right. I've seen so you're, on con you're concerned about your authority. No, not the, well, I'm concerned about the reality that's being constructed. It's not my authority. It's that there's so much absolute, you know, rubbish out there um, that it has taken over the marketplace and it's almost impossible to, you know, tamp down or rectify or undermine because no, of- you, you, you care about your authority. You're a professor. I, and you, and you're, you don't want to be argued with in class by some- No, 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 some, I don't know. Young no, I, person. No, I think that's completely wrong. I don't care about my authority. I care about the fact that there is a reality out there. The truth and is out there. I mean, this stuff is <laughs> every time I've taught that again. Right. Every time I've taught the Exodus, a student always emails me that picture of what looks like a chariot wheel at the bottom of the Red Sea that has no you know description at all. And you know, I have to start dealing with that. But you know, this stuff is even worse all of these forgeries that have to do with texts and um, whether they're inscriptions or whether they're papyri. Um, and when, you know, when academic journals and when academic institutions are, you know, involved. Right. It makes it all the more, you know, nefarious and difficult to, you know, have some kind of sense of- um, Shared reality. Yeah, shared reality and an appreciation or a belief in the rigor of the discipline. So we want to tip our hats here to Karl Popper. <laughs> he's, okay. he's downstairs getting, uh, getting coffee and to Thomas Kuhn. I think he's outside getting some, getting some, some donuts or maybe, you know, smoking a joint. And, and we, we want to we think that there's a shared reality. Right. Oh, Instead that, of just a very glitchy simulation. Right. And I guess that's the inflection point we're at, where we all now realize there is no shared reality and mm -hmm. that there are just all of these realities. That well, that, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, one of the, I, I'm going to do devil's advocate here. So, so one of uh, R.L. Sabara's main points here is how the peer review system, the academic system of double checking and triple checking your facts and making sure scholars don't think you're off the wall and never mind that this is a true artifact. His main point is that this completely broke down in the original publication of the article. Right. And um, so that's, that's a huge issue, right? So that's not where I'm playing devil's advocate. But what I wanted to say is, is um, so, you know, since then, and even at the time, there was a lot of speculation, but this is a forgery, but this is a forgery. And now we have a million articles plus this, this book saying, yep, it was a forgery and everything broke down. So here's the, so, you know, the truth will out. That's basically it. The peer review process did break down, but now a couple of years later, everybody acknowledges that this is a forged document, including the scholar who published it herself. Right, so. and, yet, and yet the journal that is responsible for the publication has not 
apparently has right. not changed any of the policies or any of its. Um, well, they didn't retract. In, right, they didn't retract. They don't even show any interest in retracting. Right, and, and that's they, yeah. They said they published at the same time one article on the other side. Right, and that gets, that gets to the issue of both siderism, which I also <laughs> feel is a real corrupting problem in the adjudication of these kinds of things. Um, and everybody uses both siderism in in the. Oh no. I, uh, that's that's unfair. There, there's a scientific there's a scientific process. So let's go let's go to the 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 oh. Jehoash tablet. Oh God! Okay. Um, no, no. <laughs> you know, there's people people scientifically disagree about the about the nature of its reality. Right. And uh, it's, a, it's a tablet, King Yoash, uh, Judah. You know, found it's a quasi monumental inscription about the size of a, I don't know, cafeteria tray and appeared out of nowhere uh, with a great, it has a great story. It is a great story. Guy, guy tried to sell it. Guy, it actually got seized by the government. It got examined every which way. It had a colonoscopy. It had, you know, tricorders waved over it. And um, the court finally said, <laughs> You, the government, seized it, but you say that it's fake, so we're giving it back to the guy who owned it. Um, it's the same with, with the James Ossuary, you know, James, brother of Jesus. And so, and there right, are the, in, there but in the case of conflicting this, reports. Right, but, in the, but that's not what's going on in the case of this um, papyrus that says Jesus had a wife. In that case, you had um, several non-scholarly assertions of its, um, of its- um, Verisimilitude? Right, thank you. I can never <laughs> pronounce that word. Um, and, and, and only one article or one reviewer um, that was calling it a fake. And no, clearly no one had done any due diligence. No one had looked at the origins. No one had looked at provenience. No one had looked at anything, but there was this notion of both siders and that there were two sides. When in reality, there weren't two sides. Right. And that's what we mean about both siderism. There, we have this journal saying, well, we used a peer review that said two peer reviewers that said it was a forgery and one peer reviewer that said it was authentic. And therefore we've, you know, we're presenting something because there is, you know, dispassionate views on both sides. When in point of fact, that's not at all what happened. Um, the people who are claiming it, it was authentic had no areas of, had no specialization in the field. No one looked at the provenience, there was none. No one looked at any of the backstory. So that's how both siderism gets, you know, misused. So there and was a breakdown in the process. Total breakdown. There was the a breakdown system didn't in the work. process. But I still have an issue with the, or with the retraction business or the lack of retraction business <laughs> because I think there's another side to that. <laughs> Retract. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you, oh if you start, I mean, this is kind of different because it was clearly a fake, but if you start retracting articles, a lot of the scholarship from earlier decades would have to be retracted because it's been, you know, we've moved beyond it and we've, we've learned things since. So a lot of things that were published 50 years ago would have to be retracted by, by modern scholarly standards. Well, only if it was based on um, forgeries. Well, what if the conclusion was completely wrong? Um, well, that we're not talking about the conclusion. We're talking about the 
you know, the coherence. Well, you're, you're talking about intent. Okay, there you go. Intentism. Intent and also professional, professionalism. Okay, so, but, okay. But, if we, but if we talk about professionalism, <laughs> then 90% of all the archaeology that went on before no, the year... No, that, uh, the, no, in this case, with this particular papyrus, the people who were doing the assessing had no area of expertise for this particular kind of artifact. Plus, they had personal relationships with the person who was saying it was authentic. That's so, where things really broke down. Right, the process right. is so broken. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, well, okay, so we should also talk about motive because I was about to say as opposed to the Joe Ash inscription or the James Brother of Jesus inscription because their motives are also important. But um, wait, what was I saying? <laughs> something, about, something about motives. <laughs> um, well, in, intent is important because what is the intent of the forger? So here, the intent of the the scholar who published it is clear. She wanted to ignore all evidence to the contrary because she wanted it to be true, be real, so that it would bolster her her ideas about women in the early Christian world. Right, um, but, but, is, but, but there's than, no financial, Is was there a financial angle that we know? I don't of? think so. I think it was, um, I don't even wanna say fame and fortune because I think it was, I think it was just more scholarly um, desire to, to prove her point right. Um, but, but I think in the case of whoever forged it, um, and in fact, um, Sabara has done some research to, to, uh, on the pre previous owner, um, who was somebody who had once attended an Egyptology program. Um, so there's something suspicious going on right there. Uh, but <laughs> going, going to graduate school in Egyptology is by <laughs> definition a suspicious activity. <laughs> But, right, that's not what I was getting at. Right. I mean, what are what are these people thinking? <laughs> right, right, right. But but um, but you know, when you come to the Joash inscription or any of these other fakes and the famous ivory pomegranate that was displayed prominently for a decade and a half before it was proven proven to be a fake, you know, what's the motivation of those forgers? Okay, this is a good place for <laughs> for a commercial break. Uh, brisket from our brisket sponsors <laughs> and uh, we'll be right back with our guest uh, our special guest Ludwig Wittgenstein who's <laughs> going to talk about language acts and the constitution of reality okay so you want to stop recording for a sec yeah yeah go <laughs> okay in our first hour <laughs> we were talking we were talking about Something having to do with fakes and forgeries. But in our second hour, <laughs> we're, we're gonna drill right down and talk about the, the, the important questions. And, and that is, who is doing all this faking and forging? We know why people, why people consume, because they wanna believe and um, because they wanna buy and they wanna own and possess the da 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 da. But the, the people who are doing it, what's the motivation there? Okay, maybe money, but. What else? Well, that's a big motivation. I don't think you can just dismiss it. Um, but, well, I think you can a little bit because, um, because I, well, because in the case of fine art, you have lots and lots of forgers mm. who probably have a pretty good idea that, 
that a lot of their forgeries are never going to, you know, earn them a lot of money. Okay. But I, I think it's, I think some of it is, if not hubris, you know, sort of pulling one over on, you know, experts. Yeah. Okay. I go along with that. I really like this idea of the, of the disgruntled graduate student. Yes. <laughs> I don't know why, I guess I just wasn't clever enough way back, way back Maybe when. Maybe you were too clever and not disgruntled enough. Oh, I was disgruntled enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm even more disgruntled now, but I'm much lazier. So. Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of an interesting point though. These forgers are not lazy people. They're people who are yeah. really well-educated within the field, within the discipline, um, and can really fake it right. really well. They're, they're, and there are they're real barriers to entry now, too. <laughs> you know, the science-based archaeology and materials analysis makes it a lot harder. Yeah, right. you never um, used to have to forge a patina. Now you have to forge a patina. Yeah, right. Yeah. But I thought, like, in the case of archaeological forgeries, of which all of the finest museums are filled with them, I don't think those people who forged, you know, any particular kind of vessel that wasn't, you know, sort of a chariot crater or something like that made a lot of money. I think that there were other things at work than, you know, just filthy lucre. I think that they were in it for the head games and in it for their own, you know, their own self-aggrandizement and things like that. Um, and that's interesting. The story that I read about, and who knows if it's if it's true or if I actually read it um, <laughs> about about the 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 you know James inscription and Joash and and things of that era was that <laughs> there was there was a particularly talented Egyptian craftsman who was put to work and he was living on top of an apartment building in Tel Aviv somewhere and you know kept kept busy but he had. He was the guy who had the touch and mm -hmm. then whoever it was that he was working for, they did, they did the product, the product rollout, creating the backstory, creating the buzz, marketing and, and so on. Now, who knows if this is true or, or if I'm just misremembering wildly, but it seems to me that in most cases of these archeological forgeries that, um, you know, the, like in any other food chain, the, the, the poor schmuck who's churning out the crap at the bottom doesn't, doesn't necessarily profit, as opposed to the fine arts business where the, the, the chain is a little bit shorter. Well, it's um, always the middlemen, I think, who profit. The, the bottom of the food chain doesn't profit, but the middlemen could be profiting quite a bit. And then when this thing finally gets sold to a museum, there's a lot of money that changes hands. Right. Yeah. But I do like the idea of a, of a graduate student just out there. I mean, and by like, I should, I should <laughs> add that I disapprove strongly. <laughs> I would hope. Uh, but, you know, throwing, throwing hand grenades, there's a salutary role in trying to keep forcing everybody to stay absolutely, totally on their toes. And uh, yeah, I suppose doing, doing the doest diligence on every artifact, right? Um, right, against credulity. That would be a great epitaph. 
<laughs> he stood against credulity. So and so against credulity. So, so do you think it's like personal, sati personal satisfaction, revenge, a combination? Well, we we don't know the circumstances, so revenge is a little bit specific. <laughs> we would have to do a background check on all the all the disgruntled art graduate students um, of the right. era, and that's a very very long list. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, being smarter than everybody—that seems to be part of Mellart's story. He was he was smarter than was everybody. Smarter, right? yeah, I was going to say he was smarter than everybody. <laughs> Right. And, uh, and but it wasn't enough just to be smarter and do the real thing. He had to go the extra step, right? And create his own his own worlds as they're supposed to be. If I were a forger, and I would never be a forger because I'm not enough of a perfectionist. Um, I also have morals. But if I were a forger, <laughs> I'd um, I'd be <laughs> I, I'd be scared of getting caught. I'd be you know scared the whole thing would fall in on me at some point. I think that to a certain degree, if you if you have an interest in forging, there's a certain part of you that wants to get caught. That's that interesting. That wants you to, you know, gain the notoriety and attention and everything else. Because yeah. you're gonna because most forgers probably do get caught or can't, you know, can't pull it off. Um, and I think that, you know, like the highest level of these forgers, you know, the fine art forgers, yeah. I think that they're, you know, if they're reproducing a Renoir or a, or a Rembrandt or, a, you know, something like that, that there's some part of them that, that wants to get caught because they, they want to have that notoriety. That is interesting. But, yeah. but no, because sure. it shows that they're as good as Ren, uh, Rembrandt. Right, exactly. And, and that's another very creaky facade, you know, what constant, you know, why these, why art has value. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, you know, and so I think that that's an element of it. Um, because it's that's a very, very, that's the most subjective of all kinds of creations of yeah. value and all of that. Yeah. And, and that brings me to something else. I don't know if this has happened yet, but these artifacts that have now been proven to be forgeries like the pomegranate. Um, so, so, you know, that could be very valuable for a collector on a different level. This is such a famous piece. Yeah, it's a forgery, but it's a really famous piece. So this thing could now be worth hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars for an entirely different reason. Well, but we should specify that the pomegranate itself is, right, with, is real. Right. The inscription. The inscription, the inscription that's fake, but so that's but, not a good. That's not a good example. No, no, but that that's a perfectly good example. That <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> that's where you're wrong. It's a good. Example. <laughs> I'm a little bit hazy on this whole good and bad thing. <laughs> but no, I mean, but you could pick. You could pick anything. Like it doesn't matter how what kind of fake it is. If it's if it's designated as special, somehow. Yeah. Ooh, this was faked by the most famous faker. Right and, it, right. and it was found out by the most famous fake finder. What whatever. constitutes value? How do we assign value? Well, exactly. Regimes and, of value. Right. And it and it and it's it's found throughout our society. So baseball cards have a long history. When I say long, it's like 20 or 30 years of 
not the most valuable ones being faked because their pedigrees and their provenience are, are always very well known and well documented. But all sorts of middle range baseball cards um, are, filled with, are, are filled with fakes. I had no idea. Yeah, and you have this very lively trade because the baseball card market in the last 20 years uh, has just, you know, gone wild. Wow. And so you have this big middle range of cards worth, you know, hundreds, maybe low thousands of dollars that are constantly being faked. And you have all these collectors who have zero idea if they have an authentic card because authenticity, it's a cardboard card and it can be easily replicated now, whereas 20, 30 years ago, we couldn't. And so everybody has these collections and they really have no idea um, right. how, how, how many fakes are in these kinds of collections. That's kind of fascinating. It is, it yeah. is. It, it is particularly fascinating because it's a very, I think it's kind of a very middle-class example of all of this. It's not high-end or low-end, it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's very much in the middle and it's completely unknowable. Right, so the, they're all decrying, you know. Oh, do I is my is my carefully curated collection over the last twenty or thirty years is it filled with fakes? Right, right. It, um, but it happens me... everywhere. And again, I, I think that's why you know the, this twenty first century, this first part of the twenty first century is a real inflection point because yeah. um, because everything is kind of you know wobbly. Um, institutions are particularly wobbly, reality, authenticity, um, value, uh, all of these kinds of things are being questioned. To the simulation the, is glitching. Yeah. Um, Why does money have value? Don't right. even start, yeah. These pieces yeah. of paper. And here, you know, here I'll just, I'll mention to anyone who's listening that they don't really have value. So get it off your hands, put it in a, put it in an envelope, send it to us. We'll make sure that, that it's properly disposed of. It won't, won't burden you. That's the old soupy sales story. Remember yeah, that? I was gonna say, right. Yeah. <laughs> they, they don't even have to handle cash. They can just put it into the Patreon account. Right. Or, or Venmo us. <laughs> Diamonds. Just shameless. Uh, well, shameless uh, Here we are. This is so meta. A bunch of shameless hucksters talking about shameless hucksterism, <laughs> as if as if we are on some kind of perch that allows us to, do that. yeah, right. right. And now a note from our sponsor. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, but how do things how do things uh, achieve value? I mean, this is one of one of the things I love about watching Antiques Roadshow. Oh yeah. And how does how does crazy crap? that you have in your house, assume value within, within a, any given society. And every society um, has this. And how does it fluctuate? And I love the episodes where they find, you know, this, this is a carved whatever that my, I found in my grandfather's basement and that he brought back from the South Seas when he was serving in the military in World War II. And, and in 19, when they first evaluated, it has a value between $1,000 and $1,500. And now it's either way more or way less or the right. same. Right. But do you also wonder how, drama. Many, how, many, how markets work, how market economies work? Say again? <laughs> how market <laughs> economies work. 
that value yeah, fluctuates well, by supply and demand and and but more yeah, to but our also taste how many of those how many of those artifacts are forgeries because because they're based on you know on some self self-proclaimed expert on 18th century furniture right right, right. and and that expertise could be based on looking at you know a hundred desks or chairs of which you know 20 percent were forged or maybe even only five percent. So, if there was a reanalysis, who knows? Right, right. And that was part of um, an older book on forgeries thesis that you know things in the Metropolitan Museum. You can't. You're, it's sort of a circular argument. You're defining them by what they are have already been called. And is there really a North Persian or whatever in culture right. and or Median culture? There, um, there's a great movie that just came out. Um, um, called Sword of Trust with Mark Maron, and it was done by his partner who recently passed away, Lynn Shelton, about a sword, a, a, a Civil War sword that was going to completely rewrite the narrative of the Civil War. And it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a dopey movie, but it but it's, brings out a lot of these points right. um, and, and motivation and sort of being in on it being in on a scam or not being in on a scam and all that kind of thing. Right, right. Um, no, that sounds interesting. And then the other thing that we'd be remiss if we didn't say, because the word provenance only came up once, JP, you mentioned it. I think it's really important to, to, to be serious about this and to, to point out that, that um, this is why provenance, um, a good archeological provenance in the serious archeological sense of fine spot, as opposed to the ownership trail of in the museum sense, is so important because if you don't know if it came out of the ground with lots of witnesses in an organized archaeological excavation, you can't ever say for sure that it's not a fake. No, we, no, and even there, you're right. You're absolutely right about that. But even there, when the Tel Don inscription was initially found, a yep. group of highly politicized scholars who believed, who, who, you know, that the discovery of that inscription would undermine a lot of what they had to say immediately started calling it a forgery and a fake. Right, that's right. Uh, even though it was found in a controlled excavation with at least dozens, if not a hundred witnesses. Right. Everyone right. was very quick to say, oh, this must be a fake. Right. So even when something is real, its pedigree can be uh, undermined and you know questioned and all of that kind of stuff. This is exactly, it's the exact opposite or the, of the, the Jesus wife thing because they're, they so wanted to believe that it was real, but here right. with the Tel Dan, they really needed to believe it was fake. Exactly. So it's like, fake. Right, it's these very human motivations that really color the interpretation and you know, the whole issue of scholarship. Yeah. Whose ox is being gored? <laughs> Who? <laughs> well. <laughs> I think that's the bottom line is is oxes are goring every, every which every which way and uh, you have to you have to be suspicious of the motives of the people who are who are out there and uh, but that plays into this this undermining of a shared sense of reality if we don't if we don't accept what we, what people see in testimonies and, and experts um, even though experts are you know, wrong quite frequently, um, then what are we, what are we going to do? What are we left with? What is reality anyway? 
Okay, now I really want to put my head in the oven. <laughs> <laughs> well, the brisket is out, so there's plenty of room. <laughs> exactly. That might right. be a good, uh, a good stopping point. Um, final words? Uh, don't, don't buy fake artifacts. Don't publish fake artifacts. Well, that's always- don't make a... fake artifacts. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll quote, uh, I'll, I'll just quote Marvin Gaye, believe half of what you see and none of what you hear. Okay. I can't, uh, I can't disagree with that. Yeah, it's hard to top Marvin. It is. Yeah. Okay. 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 All right. Well, if nothing else, we'd like to think that we have just restored the public's faith in academia. So we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, educator in residence at the Savannah Music Festival, for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, the Underwood Typewriter Company. If you're just writing a simple letter to a friend or forging the diary of a long-dead dictator, think Underwood. To get in touch, leave us a comment, send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, all one word, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.